today on Edge Effects. In a way, it's it's like say if if you went to the Galapagos, the animals don't run away from you. You know, I had in the Galapagos once I, an albatross came out of the underbrush and laid an egg right in front of my foot. It was as if I were not there. It was almost as if the albatross couldn't see me or it couldn't distinguish me from a tree or a plant. Geographer Daniel Grant sits down with writer and conservationist William Dubuise to talk about hunting down stories that help us come to terms with an age of extinction and scarcity. I'm Daniel Grant here in the studio with William Dubois. Uh, nice to have you with us. Really nice to be with you, Daniel. And you're uh, the author of many works, most recent titled The Last Unicorn, uh, Search for One of Earth's Rarest Creatures, which was published in 2015. That's right, yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it's great to have a chance to hear about your most recent adventures and, you know, into the mountainous wilderness between Laos and Vietnam. And, you know, you're in search of this creature. And we'll get to that in a moment. But first, I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how this journey came about. Well, it, this is one of those sort of mustache twirling moments when I, I, it's actually true that I had just gotten back from a, a job in Borneo and I gave a presentation about the Borneo work in a room of high rollers in Georgetown, part of Washington, D.C. And a week or two later, one of the people in the room called me on the telephone uh, found me in, at my home in New Mexico and, and uh, asked me, would you like to write about Saula? And I had no idea what he's talking about. And he explained that the Saula was a very rare creature that lived in, these, in the mountains uh, that divide uh, Lao uh, P PDR, People's Democratic Republic, one of the last uh, nominally communist nations uh, left on the planet that divided Lao from Vietnam. And his message was very intriguing. And about six weeks later, I was on a plane to Vientiane in uh, the capital of, of Laos and meeting conservation biologists who were working on Saula. And it went on from there. What was it about the Saula that sort of captured your imagination? And you write about how it has sort of, sort of also captured scientists' imagination as this in its uniqueness. Yes, I, for me, it became the embodiment of a couple of things. One is elusiveness and mystery. You know, the title of the book is The Last Unicorn, and the Saula is very like a unicorn in that respect. Very few people have seen it outside of the village world. Actually, not very many people in the village world. A handful of hunters in those mountains have actually seen live Saula. No Westerner has ever seen a Saula in the wild. So this animal is elusive, it is mysterious, it's extremely beautiful. Uh, it has long, almost straight, only slightly curved horns. And in profile, those two long horns, they can be half a meter long, blend into one, which is why it's sometimes called the Asian unicorn. There's something more about the Saula besides its elusiveness and its beauty, however, and that is its serenity. The fellow I went on the expedition into the mountains with, Bill Robichaud, who is the coordinator of the Saula Working Group of the IUCN, International 
Union for the Conservation of Nature. Bill has actually spent time with a sala, one that was captured and held in and in a menagerie at a Lao crossroads for several weeks in 1996. And in his time with this creature, observing it closely before it died, Bill found it to be so serene, he actually could pick ticks out of its ear. Um, It was calmer and more serene than any farm animal he had encountered here in in his native Wisconsin. There's something ethereal about the saula. And so it attracts. It's interesting that you mentioned this sort of ethereality and, and almost this domesticity of what is a wild creature. And you allude to the farm animal as sort of this example of a domestic creature. I'm curious, is part of its allure, its own sort of, it's so almost so wild that it appears peaceable to human contact? Well, it, it gives the impression that it has had so little contact with human beings through its evolutionary past Mm -hmm. that it just doesn't react to us very much. In in a way, it's it's like, say, if if you went to the Galapagos, the animals don't run away from you. You know, I had in the Galapagos once an albatross came out of the underbrush and laid an egg right in front of my foot. It was as if I were not there. It was almost as if the albatross couldn't see me or it couldn't distinguish me from a tree or a plant. And the saolo seems to have a completely neutral set of sensory equipment where human beings are concerned. But where canids are concerned, they go berserk. Evolutionarily, the wild dog of Southeast Asia was probably their most significant predator. And so if, if any canid goes by, even a lapdog, someone's pet, a saula, and, and Rocho observed this, a saula will go into high alert and the hackles will rise, the hairs on the back of its neck, it will assume a defensive posture, it will breathe heavily, it will snort, it will suddenly become very aroused and fierce. But humans, no, we're not important. So all of this was pretext for the trip itself, and the journey was quite an adventure. Uh, you detail this in the book. You encountered many obstacles, uh, the least of which was the, the rugged terrain. Yeah. Along with a lot of, you know, there you encountered some health problems along the way. You encountered some logistical issues. And most importantly, the creature remained so elusive to you. Your attempts were so thwarted yeah. uh, time and again. And maybe you could sort of walk us through the benchmarks of that journey. Well, it became a quest. You know, we were, we were after evidence of Sala. We wanted to evaluate a watershed, a specific, the Namyang watershed, uh, as to whether it was good Sala habitat and see if we could find maybe a track or some scat uh, that would indicate that Saula were there. So we went into this distant place. Bill said, Bill Robichaud, uh, a very knowledgeable person about this part of the world, said he thought that our blue eyes were the first that had ever gazed on this watershed, which was kind of exciting in a way. But it was a, it was a tough journey. It was physically very demanding. Bill had to exercise great, great leadership to keep the, uh, to keep the guides and porters uh, from 
basically giving up and going home. You know, it was an area where poachers from Vietnam who were likely to be very well armed were quite active. We saw evidence of them and and had slight brushes but no direct encounters with them, thank goodness. But we had three people in our group who were Lao militia who were carrying AK-47s for security and, and uh, that it, it wasn't for show. It was legitimate. So yeah, it was a venture for me beyond what I thought my possibilities were and isn't that what quests always involve? It's interesting you, you mention it being a quest and it fits very well in the genre of the quest, the narrative, the, the story of the quest. You know, going back to you know uh, Faulkner's "As I Lay Dying" and um, yeah, um, along with the bear, and yeah. those were sort of two models that you have internalized as a narrative form. Yes, that that was on your mind and, as you wrote this book, and even more the the example on my mind. I mean, the the two titles you mentioned are two of my favorite books and uh, greatest reading experiences of my life, and I do carry them around inside me. But even more for this particular project I had in mind, Peter Matheson's The Snow Leopard, which I remember reading when it appeared in the New Yorker. I can't remember. I think it came out and it was in the New Yorker in 76 or something, uh, some year about then. And I remember just being absolutely gobsmacked when I read the the crystal clarity of his prose and this sense of moving into unknown territory step by step by step on this this uh hegira this this quest for new experience for knowledge for whatever um so i i actually use the structure of snow leopard the style of day by day uh entries as the the structure for the last unicorn, are there conventions having and 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 the snow leopard um, Matheson isn't uh, seeking the snow leopard to hunt it and kill it. He's seeking it as a kind of it's it's a kind of shimra. He would love to see it. Um, he's not expecting to see it, and he never does see it. Right. And so were you conscious of your role as a kind of hunter, despite the fact that you weren't seeking to kill the th- that which you sought? And did that change the way you wrote the story at all? You know, I think there also is this sort of genre of hunting narratives where the conclusion of the hunt is the sort of conquest of the beast by which yeah. that, that, that one is seeking. And I was, I'm curious, you know, given the fact that poaching is such an issue in that area, whether you found yourself sort of trying to evade some of those archetypal hunting story conventions. Ah, those tropes, yeah. Well, we we were never in a sense in, you know, so many of those uh, hunting stories culminate in the great stalk, you know, when everything goes silent, but, but for the quest for the animal in the habitat. And we were never really in stalking mode. But now that I think about it, uh, because we didn't encounter Saula directly, I had to have an intense moment at the end of the book. The narrative demands that. So in a sense, I did 
use that that trope. But it was a quest. It was a it was a, a moment of of perception or apprehension of the past, the fullness of the past of the forest in that place. When I go out into the woods alone, not with the whole group, but so in a way, that's that's an inverted version of that part of the the hunter's story that appears in the last unicorn. And you evoke so much of the history of the place through this thread of the the hunt, and yeah. and I think that the way you've been able to sort of to attach sort of to this line that continues, yeah. this trail that this journey, this path that you're on. The way you're able to attach that kind of past yeah. is one of the most remarkable features of, of the book. It's, it's Well, it's thank striking. you. The, the, the irony is that in a way, I'm not saying the book was easy to write, but because I knew the form a priori, I didn't have to invent a structure for it as I've had to do in some other books, because I didn't have to invent the structure that left me able to put all my energy just into scene construction and to building the emotional and factual tenor of the narrative. It was freeing in a way because I didn't have to worry so much about structure. That's fascinating. I did have a very good editor on this uh, project, however, and one thing that happened for a long time, the ending of the book didn't quite work, needed one more thing. And my editor said, we need to have one more glimpse of Robichaux. And when he told me that, I realized, see, I kept a list on the corkboard in front of my desk of stories Robichaux had told me that I wanted to use. And at that late stage, there were still a couple of stories that I hadn't used. And I looked up there and I saw one and I saw that it would work and how it would fit. And it's I dropped that into the right place and used it to tie up a lot of loose ends. And without the help of my editor, John Parsley, pointing out that need, I might never have pulled that off. I was just delighted with what he caused me to do. Were you fully conscious during the journey of the way you were going to convert it into a story or and or translate this experience that didn't necessarily fit any tidies story like conventions pretty much i think i'd uh, you know i actually in my pack i had a copy of the snow leopard huh. and so i i went into this thinking if i can if events permit me i'm going to use that structure and tell a tale a quest tale. And in some ways it didn't matter what happened because it all fit within this sort of sign of the quest. That's right. You know, it's you use the journey as the I think of it sort of the the clothesline on which you hang a number of digressions that inform the reader about the issues and uh, the whys and the wherefores and so forth. And in the snow leopard uh, Peter is uh, going into his Buddhist quest for mindfulness and and for uh, release from samsara in in a way uh, he's trying to become the spiritual person he truly wants to be so that's what he's doing there to a large degree in my case I'm talking about wildlife and nature and the wildlife trade and issues along that and trying to tell the story of an immersion into 
deep beauty. So it's a different trajectory, but the structure is the same. And I, you know, to be honest, Peter didn't invent that structure either. There, there are quite a few tales out there that that you could find that that follow this pattern. It's one of the oldest structures for human storytelling ever. The structure of the journey, and and it it you have this forward motion because there's actually movement through space. And there should be also with this movement through heart. Uh, and that helps keep the pages turning. I'm thinking about this movement through space and the space being the rugged mountainous terrain on the border between Laos and Vietnam and how terrain also figures prominently in your earlier works having to do with the, the great American desert in the Southwest. And I, I'm wondering if you might be able to sort of meditate a little bit on the role that topography plays. You know, I, I, I'm recalling a memorable line from your 1999 book, Salt Dreams, which is about the, the arid southeastern corner of California and the very far northern part of Baja, California. Yeah, the land where the Colorado River goes to die. Yes. And uh, along with those, with that sentiment, you write, uh, in low places, consequences collect. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm curious if you can think about, if, if, if you could sort of juxtapose that experience in low places and the way you've sort of narrated the journeying through low places with the high mountainous terrain of the book you just wrote of, of yeah. The Last Unicorn. Both works are sort of lamenting a kind of loss. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of loss in, in Salt Dreams, it's a kind of scarcity. In The Last Unicorn, it's a kind of uh, um, rarity and endangeredness of this, this beautiful animal. And so what role, you know, there's sort of almost like a vertical geography of loss that, that you're sort of evoking through both of these these books. So I, I'm curious. Well, starting out as a writer, I wanted to tell stories in which the land was not a stage for human events, but was an actor in them. I mean, that's that's at the core of my drifting into what eventually I learned was environmental history, for instance, where the where the land has agency and shapes human affairs and is shaped by human affairs and the reciprocal back and forth goes on forever and ever. My first book was about mountain country and I thought of Salt Dreams, which was book number three, I think, as being the opposite end of the bookshelf, the other bookend, you know, from top to bottom. And the top, the mountains, and, and as you say, Last Unicorn fits into that. When I think of mountains, I think of headwaters, but it's kind of a pun. You know, it's the headwaters of the river, but also the waters in your head. It's where your thinking begins. It's at the top. It's where it's the source of mythology. It's, it's uh, the, the deep forest of the unknown. It's, it identifies with the dark places in your head. You can't see everything. So in that sense, I think my expectations of mystery and surprise and uh, unpredictability, things like that, fit with those mountains, the Anamite mountains that, that I was in, in Laos. And uh, 
and which you know Vietnam was just a few a few kilometers to the to the east of us. And I think the role that landscape has has played in your work and the fact that you didn't really see yourself as an environmental historian until you realized that that was a term that described your work. Well, I wrote I wrote my first book just trying to write a book about this <laughs> land where I was and uh and when I was about 80% done, I realized I would never make any money from it, but it would be a good idea to cash it in for all the academic remuneration I could get, go get a master's degree. So I took this manuscript to graduate school, and there I found out that people talked about and that academics had recently formed a professional association about environmental history. And my first work, Enchantment and Exploitation, was a completely naive work in not naive in that I didn't know anything, but naive in, in that I was innocent of any professional training or indoctrination in what I was doing. It just kind of happened that way. When you discovered that there was sort of a professional guild that was associated with the kind of work you were doing, did that provide some sort of analytical framework that could allow you to continue doing that kind of work? Was it confining in the sense that you were sort of able to think sort of freely, free of disciplinary constraints before finding it? And now that there was a guild, you felt a little more like there were sort of um, uh, conventions that you needed to sort of follow? Well, actually, no. I, I, I think I stayed free of this any sense of obligation to follow conventions, I, I felt validated to know that other people were pursuing this subject matter. But in my, in my own work, I just kept looking for what's the story? What's the story that I want to tell? And I didn't think analytically in terms of frameworks so much. I, was, I would just try to figure out, okay, what really gets to the heart of this? What really explain something and and how can i tell it in a way that there is a feeling of narrative impulse and and so that always leads to the question how can i what human characters can i place in this narrative to move events along or, and and maybe not events but even just a succession of ideas how, how can i use other people's voices to say the things that need to be said so that we we, we have a sense of accomplishment as we get to the end of a given chapter, say. Coupling that with your sort of earlier comments about the role of landscape and yeah. landscape as figuring not just as a stage by which your actors or your characters enact your, the story right. on, but also having a sense of the landscape itself is an actor in your story. Can you give examples of scenes, I guess, that you or units of, of a story that you can point to where there's that kind of reciprocal given, you know, back and forth relationship. Well, you mentioned uh, salt dreams earlier and, you know, that, that thematic statement in low places, consequences collect. That's agency of the landscape. Consequences literally collect in that the salt and sea is a sump. It's a body of water with no outlet. So any poisons that are put into the watersheds above it wind up collecting there. Uh, the salt that 
is just part of, uh, of the hydrology of the region and that is intensified by all of the in irrigation in Imperial Valley. The salt winds up there. Those consequences literally collect there and they influence um, the failure, for instance, of the real estate uh, developments that were attempted along the edge of the Salton Sea, which, which failed as the sea became ranker and less, less attractive, less attractive for recreation. I mean, the, the fish die-offs and the stench that arose from there was just <laughs> biblical in its, in its uh, power. So the Salton Sea is a great example, actually, of, of things going back and forth and, and humans trying to adjust to environmental change and the, env the changed environment then producing still more influence on human affairs. And it's still going on there. I mean, um, the people of California have still not figured out what to do with the Salton Sea. It's still a problem. It's getting worse. There are lots of projects, uh, possible solutions, in a sense, on the books, but they all cost immense amounts of money and uh, resources, and and uh, the state, to a large degree, has been paralyzed, hasn't been. But this reciprocal thing goes on and on. If nothing is done, and if the sea dries up, then those poisoned sands will be a source of terrible uh, dust storms and the downwinders will have respiratory problems that come from that. It's very like the Aral Sea in Central Asia. Um, so these reciprocal consequences go on and on ad infinitum. You can't just draw a line and say they stop here. Um, there is a sense in, at the end of salt dreams, at the end of a great aridness at the end of The Last Unicorn, of they are also moral tales, right? And they're yes. sort of... So I, I'm curious if you can sort of connect the dots among some of not just The Last Unicorn, but your earlier works as well, um, about what kind of moral you leave the reader with in each story, and, and if there are any sort of themes that emerge from each of those morals. Yeah, I, I guess... Perhaps more than uh, a number of other historians, I, I do want to tell a moral tale. I, I want to squeeze the situation for as much meaning as I can get from it. And I think in fundamental terms, all meanings are moral. They give us guidance in, in how we live. And that's why I read. And, and so I want to do in my books, the things that motivate me the most from the reading that I have done. And so with Last Unicorn, for instance, I hope the reader falls a little bit more deeply in love with the beauty of nature, with the amazement of diverse places, and feels more motivated than before to take action in defense of that beauty, which is symbolized by the Saula, by this remarkable animal. Um, so that would be a hope there. I try not to be too strident about it. I don't say, you must feel this way. I want to lay it right between the lines so that it's a feeling that the reader has at the end of the journey. But, and, I, and I hope with all my books, the reader has a feeling at the end of whatever journey there's been.
Uh, I remember an earlier writing teacher once telling me that worthwhile conclusions evoke, they don't conclude. Yes, yes, that's very nice. I like that, yeah. I'm um, sort of curious in this moral space that we're talking about, how the scarcity of water in the American West that you write so sort of eloquently and also expansively about, and the scarcity of this wild creature that you're on this journey to find um, in, 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 in these mountains, um, if, you, if you could sort of reflect on what loss means, what scarcity means, and where salvation lies in, in the face of both of these well, things. Well, one hopes there is salvation right. somewhere, but I, I think it's a human trait almost, or at least that of uh, technical humans, modern humans with technical capability, to be able to create, in many instances, abundance out of scarcity. That's what we did in the American Southwest with the great dam building era. We created abundance where there had been none. And then we used it and used it and used it and turned abundance in the end back into scarcity. And what humans seem really unable to do is to exercise restraint over a long period of time, or at least maybe this is only true of modern humans, but I don't think so. I think when we go back even, well, I know a little bit about the archaeology of the, of the Southwest, and, and even in uh, many native cultures, there was local resource exploitation to the point of scarcity, and then the community would relocate, and again, and again. So, Maybe this is just the human predicament, but if we could exercise true fundamental restraint, if we could recognize limits and, and live with them, uh, our chances over the long haul would, would be uh, substantially improved. And with the recognition of limits, are there examples of maybe not stories, but vignettes or episodes, moments? that you can point to as showing that kind of restraint, both, you know, in maybe in, let's take Last Unicorn as, as an example. So, um, you know, it is a morality tale of lack of restraint, right, in yeah. the end. Yeah. But are there moments along the way that you can sort of point to and say, you know, if more of this, right, more, more, I mean, I remember in your talk yesterday, you sort of pointed to the washing of feet, as as a as a kind of exercise in humility and also an exercise in openness to the problems of the people who you are surrounded by does that at all sort of fit with that theme of restraint or well yeah i think it does but at the same time i i just i i have never come to a human community that was in equilibrium perfect equilibrium with its environment mm -hmm. i mean i'm sure there are some Maybe some of the tribes in the Amazon may have attained that. I don't know. But my recent work in, in uh, Upper Dalpo, Nepal, in, in Borneo, in Southeast Asia, my study in the Southwest, I, I haven't found it yet. And so I think humans always live in tension with their 
resources. Uh, perhaps it's a dynamic equilibrium in some respects, but you know, population is always pressing against the limits. And if the limits are strong enough, they, they will check population. It's eco ecological. So there's always tension. And it's the tension in a way that makes the in interesting story. It's the tension that we, we need to study and, and learn from to get guidance. There's a way in which equilibrium may in some ways be the, the kind of elusive animal that you were sort of seeking. But I, but I also think that it seems to me that there is a way that your time living in vastly different corners of the globe has taught you also about the particularities of local experience, right? In a way that makes it hard to generalize about humans writ large. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. and so it's interesting how each of your tales is, is so grounded in, the, in, in region and locale, and yet you, you're able to sort of make generalities from, from that? Well, I, I don't want to suggest that I, that I think I have the answers to these uh -huh. questions. You know, these are, these are gigantic questions that in a way with each of these efforts, I'm trying to explore some little corner of specifically because I don't have the answer. You know, I'm, I'm on this quest to enlarge my understanding, but it's always just little increments. I mean, I'm, I, I've never seen, <laughs> I have never seen the future, just chipped away at, at edges of it. And that's the fun of it. And finding ways to take these uh, experiences and render them in stories that I can share with other people. And the meta story is always trying to put the pieces together in my own mind in a way that I can share them. But the puzzle is never complete, can never be complete. Well, to fitting more puzzle pieces in there. Yeah, poco a poco. That's uh, in northern New Mexico, one of our adages is uh, poco a poco anda lejos. Uh, little by little, you walk a long way, step by step. Well, thank you for joining us. It's great. a pleasure, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you. That was Daniel Grant, PhD candidate in the Department of Geography at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, speaking with environmental writer William Dubuis. Dubuis is the author of eight books, most recently, The Last Unicorn, A Search for One of Earth's Rarest Creatures, available from Whittle Brown and Company. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by me, Brian Hamilton, with special thanks to Emily Earhart and Alexandra Lekind. The music you're listening to is by Julian Lynch. We'll be back in two weeks to hear from the scholars leading the effort to reconstruct the landscapes of slavery on the campus of the University of Mississippi. And then in June, we'll have Neil Marr on to discuss his brand new book, An Environmental History of the Space Race. Get those and every episode sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to the EdgeFX podcast in the iTunes store. You can also find us on Google Play, Stitcher, and TuneIn.
If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review. And as always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgeeffects.net.